0: Before we start this episode, I'd like to thank my sponsor, MSI Computers. They've been a great contributor to the community this year. If you enjoy listening to Masters of Motion and find it helpful, it would be fantastic if you could help me by writing a written review on your podcast player and also then sending it to me via email at Matthew at mastersofmotion.com.au. I'm going to use these recent reviews to present to potential sponsors for next year. Alrighty, I really appreciate your help. Thanks very much for listening. Let's get into the episode. My name's Matthew Packwood, and welcome to Masters of Motion. Each episode, I'll be talking to some of Australia's and New Zealand's leading motion design, animation, and visual effects artists. Today, I'll be chatting with executive producer Alistair Stephen. Alistair started his career way back in 1991, working in high end advertising agencies as an editor. He's also worked extensively in motion design for broadcast and advertising. First at The Attic in Sydney, and then as executive producer at Engine. Alistair has contributed to the professional community as the co-chair of the VES. For over a decade, Alistair has been producing award-winning commercial and long-form VFX for brands such as Coca-Cola, Hyundai and Westpac, as well as studios like Marvel and Netflix. Alistair is presently the head of VFX at fin Design and FX. He's an excellent producer and an outstanding communicator. Let's get into it. Thanks very much, Alistair, for taking the time to come and share your knowledge with us. It's a pleasure to be here and uh, thank you for having me. What are you looking for when you're hiring a producer?
1: They obviously have to have some experience in the business. They have to have an understanding of what visual effects is. They need to understand all the terminology. But more often than not, I'm also looking at their personality, how they might be able to deal with quite complex problems and lots of stressful moments that can occur on a project and how they would deal with those moments of stress because they're inevitable and you need someone that needs to be particularly calm under pressure. If someone is not particularly calm under pressure it then starts translating through the crew and that's sort of the last thing that you want on a project. Like the, the producer really needs to be the calming influence amongst sometimes a lot of chaos. So I think that's a very, a very important attribute that you need to be able to display. And I also think, obviously, you need to be incredibly organised and also have a very good eye for detail.
0: So what's the different skills you need from working in advertising versus working in long-form TV and film?
1: It's the same principles and the same application, whether it's for a short-term commercial or for a long-form film i guess film i guess it's a lot longer so you have to have a lot more patience and it's not for everybody film like some people really like the rapid turnover that commercial can bring um, whereas other people involved in film they really like the longer term project being able to focus on one thing or one one larger particular type of project at, at any given time whereas commercials i guess you are focusing on three or four projects at a time so it can be a little bit more stressful. But in terms of your visual effects understanding, it's really the same for both.
0: What's the best way to market yourself when you're looking for a job as a junior producer or manager?
1: LinkedIn, have a very up-to-date resume. Don't be shy to pick up the phone and ring a facility and ask who you want to talk to.
0: Yeah. If you were a small studio or individual artist who wanted to hire a producer to help out on projects, what would you be looking for?
1: Experience. In a smaller type environment, you probably want someone that is a little bit multifaceted to the
0: things that they could bring you. Cool. And what are the things that you should do in an interview? Always look someone in the eye, be honest. You can really tell if someone's not telling the truth. And what are the things that you wouldn't do? Oversell. That's a, no one's ever said that before. It's interesting. It seems obvious.
1: Overselling can
0: be a little bit off-putting. Yep. What TV, movies, music and magazines inspired you when you were growing up?
1: I used to watch a lot of um, cartoons when I was young. One that comes to mind is uh, He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. I must admit.
0: Huh. That's funny. Someone else said that too.
1: I was a very keen surfer and skateboarder. I'm still a very keen surfer to this day.
0: As a, as a teenager, I was very
1: much into sort of rap music, American hip-hop culture. Yep. This is going back into the 80s. Um, and I was also very much interested in spray can art and that whole sort of area and that, that culture. And, um, yeah, I actually even for my one of my final year 12 subjects I did a whole study on spray can art in Sydney in Australia and it was something that I was really really passionate about
0: Were you ever considered becoming an artist?
1: No, I never really considered becoming an artist.
0: Yeah.
1: The school I went to, you do these career development things. It sort of goes through all the things that I said when I was when I was, you know, I think I was 16 and it it, it said I wanted to one of the the topic or one of the careers that I wanted to to pursue was to be an advertising agent so
0: (laughs) (laughs) you're right yeah excellent all righty when did you discover post-production feature effects and how did you become passionate about it
1: i became friends with a couple of people that were a bit older than me and um one of them worked at channel nine and he drove the news cruiser around he was a sound recordist and he really wanted to be a cameraman and we ended up going out on every weekend filming. And I used to record the sound and he used to do all the camera work. And that's really where I got my first taste of production and cameras and sound. And I thought, yeah, this is
0: really interesting. Okay. And what year uh, did you start working in the industry?
1: I started working in the industry in 1991, actually.
0: 1991? Yep. Jesus. (laughs) Yeah.
1: It's, uh, it's been a while.
0: <laughs> it's funny. Well, well, you're not the oldest, longest person. Peter Visca is the oldest. He was 69 and started his career in the 70s.
1: I was 50 yesterday, Matthew.
0: Jesus. <laughs> uh, uh, All righty. Briefly describe your career path. How did you start working in advertising and then progress into film and VFX?
1: Got my first job in advertising in 1990. I got a scholarship to for three months paid work experience at George Patterson Bates. During that time, I then was offered a job as a dispatch boy at an agency called DDB Needham in North Sydney. Uh, it was a big multinational agency. I worked there for about two years. I went in. I worked in dispatch and then I moved into the media department. And really, media was not really where I wanted to be. I really did want to be in um, the TV production department of an agency. I then got a job uh, at McCann Erickson as uh, the studio dubs boy. And then I was there for six and a half years and I progressed to be an avid editor in the agency. Or well, during that time at McCann, so I got a real sort of look at visual effects and post-production and really zeroed in on that being where I wanted to be and where I wanted to work. I then did a year at a company called The Attic in in the city. Um, It was sort of a bit of a diversion for me. I went there thinking it was going to be something and it was really something else. I then got offered a job at um, Engine and I was there as the executive producer for the next eight years of my career. During that time, I did a myriad of broadcast design projects and commercials and worked with some amazing talented people, which some of which I still work with to this day. I then moved over to a company called Omnilab Media that had a number of business units. First of which was one called The Lab. I also worked across digital pictures and also a company, a very famous company called Allura, which is from Melbourne. I then did a little bit of time at Fuel when Animal Logic took over Fuel, during which time I was also in discussions with Finn, where I am currently now. I moved over to Finn and I've been here for the last nine years.
0: Wow. Cool. All right. That's a excellent description. Why didn't you ever start your own studio? That's
1: a really good question, I guess. I just don't actually ever felt that I needed to or wanted to, I guess everywhere I've worked, I felt like it is my own studio and that's just the way I've behaved. Yep. I don't necessarily think I work for people. I work with people and, I've worked with some very, very talented people in, in my career and some all the owners of the businesses that I've worked for have really given me a lot of um, a lot of room to be able to do what that I can do.
0: Cool. And which projects do you think satisfied you the most over your career? Recently,
1: we made a commercial here at Finn uh, with Scoundrel and a director by the name of Michael Spiccia. And it's probably the best commercial that I've ever worked on from a technical and production value point of view i really think it's some of the best work finn has done commercially for a long time and what was the commercial it was a commercial for hyundai where three robots come and steal a car from a front driveway and take the car back to the future
0: and it looked very cinematic that commercial how did it compare doing that to doing like a shots for a vfx film
1: It was almost the same. We applied exactly the same techniques, the same individuals that work on feature films worked on that commercial. I guess the only real difference from a execution point of view is that the bulk of all the compositing was done in Flame where with all our long form and film projects, the majority of the compositing is done through Nuke. Apart from that, everything was pretty similar.
0: And do you see a future in Flame still?
1: very much so yeah look flame is very much a a big part of what we have here and what we do here and uh, will be for some time
0: yeah and we're going to like talk about failures now it's always a tricky question have you had any failures in your career and what did you learn from them
1: i've had many i guess like i've made many mistakes numerous that come to mind yeah but one very early in my career is I was working in an agency and I was dealing with a production company producer and I allowed him to, to fluster me, whether I allowed him to fluster me or whether I just got flustered. And I made some errors in relation to the budget and found myself in a little bit of a budget hole with the production. I went to the executive producer of the particular agency I was at and I told him about the situation. He said, well, look, you know, you're just going to have to manage your way out of this situation and you're going to have to manage the budget so you can at least get it back to a sort of a net level so we're not losing any money here. Yeah. He had a very interesting way of telling me, you know, it's just something that I still sort of, I still live by to this day is always allow yourself five more minutes, always try and be five more minutes ahead of anybody else. So before you send something, you can always check it. And uh, it's something that I try to live by to this day, particularly from... A budgeting point of view.
0: So always check to make sure that it's right before you send it out. Even if you need to take five minutes,
1: take five minutes.
0: And what was the hardest thing you had to learn to progress your career? Not take things um, personally. So give us an example.
1: You can look at things from an emotional perspective when I really think you need to be somewhat unemotional with some of the decisions that you need to make. I just think with time, you just got to try and, I'm not saying being cold, but take emotion out of it and look at it for what it is. And um, it often is, things can become a little bit clearer.
0: Yeah, well, I've never achieved that. Everything's personal to me and my work is like passion and I really struggle with, (laughs) it's basically, it's all personal uh, relationships, All the
1: relationships and all that sort of stuff and all of the people that I work with, I emotionally am very connected with them all. However, sometimes a situation can come about where one just needs to look at it from a really unemotional perspective and you you just have a little bit more clarity in the decision-making that you can make. I guess in my position, I have to sort of do that quite regularly.
0: What did you learn working in advertising agencies? and how did this affect the way you work today?
1: I, I learned from working in advertising agencies that I didn't want to work in them forever. Um, that was one thing. Um, and I realized that I, wanted, I needed to specialize and move to where the work really happened because my passion was production and television and visual effects. So I needed
0: to, to specialize. So that's one thing. And, and you're working as an editor in the ad agencies when you're in production in the ad agencies. What did you learn from that?
1: Well, look, I think um, those times of being the editor, sitting in the hot seat, has really allowed me um, to have a really good understanding of what it's like for all the artists that I work with now. Um, and it really has allowed me to make good judgment in relation to the artists and how and and, and where they might be at with a particular project, and when they've had enough and they need a break. Um, so yeah, being, a, being sitting in that seat, understanding the pressure that it can that it can bring, um, has really helped me in relation to how I deal with them and manage them today.
0: Can you describe the studio engine, the size, the service offering, the type of projects, and the clients that you had? Um, Okay, so when I arrived at Engine, I reckon the
1: staff there was around about 20. Yep. Um, There was three designers at Engine, Finnegan Spencer, Dominic Bartolo, and, uh, and Kevin Mercer. And then there was a couple of compositing suites and some CG. I reckon there'd be about four seats of CG.
0: Dominic went on to run a pretty successful studio too, yeah?
1: Yeah, he did. He, he's, what, twenty one nineteen. 19. Um, so, yeah, worked with Dom for many years. Like, Well, I was at Engine for eight years, so I reckon I was working with Dom for at least five of those. Finnegan and I worked together the whole time there, and then Finnegan and I went and worked together at another studio.
0: And what was the team like? Did Was there any other interesting people who worked there?
1: After Dom and Kevin left, we... Uh, hired uh, Bradley Grosch, or who's also known as g monk Yep. Um, another, and there was another designer by the name of Anders Schroeder, who is now back in Copenhagen with his his design studio Frame.
0: Okay. It's a pretty heavy hitters there.
1: Yeah, they were they're they they're amazing times to be honest. Um, you know, those two guys came over from the US, and um, yeah, they, they, they were they're amazing.
0: All right, Uh, and did you say Finn Spencer?
1: Yeah, Finn and Spencer, yeah, or Finn Spencer,
0: yeah, yeah. Ah, he's also really good. Uh, You should check those people's work out if you're out there, Uh, go and Google their names. They do great stuff. Alrighty, so, and what clients did you have?
1: Channel nine, channel seven, all the big television channels because Engine was very renowned for its broadcast design.
0: Briefly explain what your role was at Engine and explain your day-to-day activities. Day-to-day
1: was pretty chaotic, but um, I was the executive producer at Engine. Um, obviously, really focused on driving new business uh, as well as managing the projects that were in the building at any given time. Um, so yeah, it was, a, it was a pretty busy day every day, um, but very rewarding at the same time.
0: So what are the key methods to managing motion design teams? Uh, Have a lot of patience,
1: give them a lot of room to to do what they do. I guess, um, allow them the time. I guess that's the really key thing, you know, you've really got to be able to give them the time to be able to do what they need to do and understand that they need time. Is that time in the budgeting and timelining or is that? With both, yeah. And look, I think managing any creative personnel You've really got to allow them, give them a space to be creative. And I think there's often a whole lot of noise that they really don't need to know about and don't need to hear about. Uh, And that's the key really, keeping them on track and um, focused on the creative side of what they're doing and just leave all the other business at the door sometimes.
0: Okay, and what are the biggest challenges of working in broadcast slash motion design? And how did you overcome them?
1: Some of the difficulty was, I guess, managing the multiple projects that we would be getting involved with at any given time. Um, And I often find that's the most difficult where people are wanting to work with the people that you've got in your business. They're already on a job um, and that overlap that happens, uh, I find that's sometimes the most difficult aspect of those type of projects.
0: And you answered that by bringing in freelancers or...?
1: Yeah, we did. We had a very good um, freelance base as well at Engine. We had a couple other designers that we could tap into. So, yeah, that's a very good point.
0: And how did the budgets go in that period? Were they going up or down or...?
1: Uh, the budgets were pretty good. Um, during that time, all of the broadcast design was done out of house. Like, So there was a fair bit of... There was good budgets kicking around. Then I started to watch the networks take more and more in-house as, 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 as sort of that sort of market changed. So that's when the budgets became a little bit more restrictive. But that said, you know, we're, we're also doing quite a large amount of advertising work uh, at Engine during the same period.
0: And did the advertising work support the motion design work or were they equally financially successful?
1: Yeah, look I think it was I think it was probably a 60/40 type split. Yeah, probably 60% advertising at the end, 40% broadcast. Um, we also got involved with quite a bit of um experiential type work. Um, we did a lot of event work during my time at Engine. Um, so yeah, it was a, it was a pretty mixed bag. Okay.
0: And that uh, sort of in that time that was sort of the golden era of most broadcast design and then it sort of deteriorated to in-house production uh and then the budgets got eaten up by individual people so it was very hard to get teams on board you know so you can't really charge for a producer that much these days which
1: yeah look that's a red rag to a bull someone like me i sometimes think the producers well it is producer is just as important as anybody else on a project
0: yeah, and I agree too. And it's like, how do you charge when, you know, the, they don't want to charge for a producer the client? So it's a hard sell in in that area of broadcast design and a lot of motion design as well.
1: Yeah, it's difficult. It's difficult.
0: So how do your pre profit market... <laughs> Fuck. Sorry. I will stuff up a bit because I'm pretty nervous today. <sighs> okay. Deep okay. breath. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what the? <laughs> oh. so how do you achieve profit margins on small projects
1: run your job well i think it's the most pure and simple
0: so what, what about revisions
1: keep your client honest keep your client honest
0: okay so if you got a lot of revisions in the project how do you stop it running over
1: communication transparency with the client, be brave, and call them out on what they're asking for.
0: And does calling them out often lead to losing that client?
1: Um, look, I just think you've got to be focused on the job that you're doing. Look, you try have to try and evaluate some decisions or some requests that you're making of a client of who they are. Are they a client that keeps coming back? Are they a first-time client? Sometimes people focus on the, the other job that might be, but really you just gotta focus on the job that you're doing. And if you do that right and you do it well, they'll come back.
0: Yeah. How do you go about on those small projects asking for more money if required?
1: Um, well, you've gotta ask and then see what happens, I guess. Like I've, I've never been afraid of asking. Yeah. Um, I've never been afraid of communicating. and I've never been afraid of talking. Yeah. Um, and. I think that's how you build relationships and uh, the key to any of this stuff is a relationship and the key to ongoing business is a relationship Yeah, um, and I think
0: clients respect you for it. You won a lot of pitches at Engine. Could you tell us about the process and how you went about winning them?
1: A hell of a lot of work. <laughs> um, that's a real expense in my my view where you know, these we were asked to come on board and do quite elaborate pitches to win jobs. And that's costly. And I wasn't afraid sometimes, depending if it was a really big... Look, this is going back a while for me now. But, you know, if it was a really big network redesign, we'd be asking for a pitch fee.
0: Yeah. And did you get it?
1: Sometimes. Sometimes we didn't. And again, you know, we did an incredible amount of work back in the day with Fox Sports, like we were, they were a really big client of ours. So when they asked us to pitch, we didn't really have a problem. Yeah. Um, but then when, you know, some, sometimes we'd also be called in to pitch on another network and we knew they used to do a lot of work with company A over there. And we just sometimes sort of would, would smell that we might be just making up the numbers. We might ask for a pitch fee. But again, you just got to assess each job on its merit and. And, and, and take the leap
0: and in your opinion is pitching good or bad for the industry
1: if you get paid a pitch fee i think it's all
0: right but if you don't
1: back in the day yeah look it was tough but again we were just in the we were in the mix the whole time and again we were working with all those clients so it wasn't that much of an issue because we had a lot of ongoing relationships and it wasn't like they were all just first time giving cold calling us and asking us to do these elaborate pitches for, for no money. Yeah. So I can see how that would be problematic for, for a smaller studio. Um, but we get asked to help and pitch sometimes here at Finn. Yeah. But again, it's usually with regular clients that we work with all the time.
0: And if they win the job, we win the job. So I want to talk about uh, your time at OmniLab. It was a big changing time in the industry. Sure. What were the challenges that you faced at OmniLab and what was the experience like and what did you learn uh, working in a big, big post-production and VFX company?
1: The first challenge was coming from a smaller company and arriving at a bigger company and getting an understanding of, what that all meant. Um, I was leaving. I was particularly ch- challenged in my personal life when I make this. When I made this big change. Yeah. Um, I lost both my parents very close together, like within six months. Jesus. And after that moment, I decided that I wanted to change a few things up. And look, um, I'd had Omnilab had been calling me for a lot, a long time, saying, "Come over, come over. We'd really love you to join the company." And in the end, I just said I just gave him a call and I said I'm ready and I and I went over. Not really, I was doing it, but I didn't really. It wasn't something that was a burning desire for me to do, but I was doing it anyway. Yep. Because I did in the back of my mind think that I was still going to learn something. Um, so yeah, it was challenging from that perspective. I was, I was I was leaving a whole crew of people that I was I was um, very close to and done a lot of amazing work with. So that was pretty that was really difficult. But I was also joining a business and I'd identified people in that business that I really really wanted to work with um, and I'd let them know that, that these particular individuals that I was coming for that reason yep and I guess that was the reason that that gave me that reasoning of wanting to go there it was particularly corporate I will admit it had its own set of challenges like it had big challenges its location and it was it was very beholden to the infrastructure there that was it was all like telecine chains, there was really sort of a lot of equipment there that was very outdated because digital was happening, film wasn't being shot anymore. Yeah. And it was going through a really transitional period, so that was particularly difficult for some people within the business to really understand.
0: Was it a hard place to work at?
1: Yeah, it was pretty difficult. It was a pretty difficult environment, I'll say that. Um, um, Yeah, it was challenging, that's for sure.
0: Through all those challenges and like the collaboration of different companies into this big OmniLab thing, uh, what did you learn and what did you walk away with? I walked
1: away with um, a great deal of experience um, that I would not have got anywhere else.
0: What sort of experience?
1: Of, I guess, how not to do things. Yeah. In saying that, they were doing a lot of great things at the same time. There were certain areas and aspects of the business with all within Omnilab and all those business units that were really doing amazing things. And they, and this, and so I also learned a lot about what amazing things that you could be doing. Um, yeah. And I guess Omnilab really ignited the fire in me to to move into long form. Because I got exposed to to film and long form there. Yeah. And that was through Ulura.
0: All right, so now I want to talk about producing. How did you develop your producing skills and what were the important steps you took along the way?
1: I developed my producing skills over time. That's the biggest key. Producing, I think, is all about experience and you become a better producer after every single project that you work on because every single project is different. Every single project will throw a different... Challenge at you as a producer, and the more that the, the more projects that you do, the better you become. Um, so, yeah, I'm still challenged by producing to this day, but yeah, in terms of being a good producer, I've had the opportunity to work with really, really talented producers, and I've all learned from them.
0: What are the key skills and important attributes that a producer, a good producer, has?
1: I think you need to be very patient. I think you need to be a good listener. Well, I guess you need to know when to listen and then you also know when to talk. Um, You need to be empathetic, you need to be organized and I think you need to be ready for everything to change the very next day.
0: So you need to embrace change?
1: You need to be able to embrace change and I think, or just roll with change. Like I think, yeah, and then and what you also need to understand is no matter how much you do that day and no matter how, much, how late you might stay at night, you're never going to get it all done and there's always going to be something there for you tomorrow.
0: And then like if you don't have those skills, if you're not particularly particular patient and you are trying to say as an artist produce as well because that's common in the industry, What would you say to those people?
1: Make a choice. Be one or the other.
0: But it's just not possible these days. Like, there's hundreds of artists out there producing their own work, maybe thousands.
1: From where I sit and the places that I work and where I've worked, I've always had producers. Um, So I probably can't identify that much with artists that are trying to produce at the same time. Yeah. I think you'll be able to produce more as an artist if you have some production support and I think you'll be able to produce better.
0: If, if an artist is producing their own work, what are the most important areas they should concentrate on when producing?
1: I think communication with the client, keep communicating, keeping them updated of where you're at. I think that's really, really important. And I guess, um, Letting them know if something's not going to be delivered in the right time and give them a good understanding of why. I just think producing is all about communication. And the more you communicate and the more people understand
0: about where their project is at, the better it will be. Now I want to talk about quoting negotiation. If a client comes to you with a fixed budget for a project... Mm -hmm. What's your approach?
1: Do a bid and see where I land, first and foremost.
0: Budget. So if they've got 10,000, say, you know, they've got a script and whatever. Yep. What do you do? Well, I'll budget
1: and estimate the job first and foremost and see if it is really $10,000 or if it's 20.
0: And if it's 20? I'll
1: ring the client back and have a chat. Yeah. Um, But I guess it depends, again, who's the client? Have I worked with them before or have we worked with them before? Um, And there's a whole lot of other criteria that would come into that evaluation of that particular project.
0: So do you ever take projects on that you know you're going to run at a loss?
1: Not regularly, no.
0: What's your approach to negotiation Uh, if they come to you and they say, you know you've given us a quote but we only got this much what's your approach
1: well sometimes i will give them ideas on how we could rework the particular creative or what they're asking for to fit with in their budget
0: say that you've taken the project on and you think it's going to be like a folio piece sure uh, a good project and then that negotiation happens what's your approach then
1: Um, It depends on if it's like if the budget's not good enough, you mean?
0: Yeah, but it's a great project. Oh, look, if it's a great project,
1: yeah, you might look to um, negotiate a different terms of payment. So look, I guess in terms of payment, the sort of industry standard is you get 50% up front, but there's been times where I've been able to negotiate that to be a higher fee or a higher percentage up front. Yeah.
0: When it comes to payment terms, uh, do you recommend to like uh, artists who are working by themselves to have really strong payment terms?
1: Make sure yourself's covered, yeah, most definitely.
0: And, and do you think that the 50% up front is important?
1: Definitely. Particularly if it's of a job of a certain yeah. size, you know, it's essential.
0: Agencies are notorious for long payment terms in the last payments. Yeah. Do you have any tips on how to get it paid a bit earlier?
1: I'll see if they offer them a couple of percentage discount and they might pay it to you earlier. Uh,
0: How important do you think written contracts are and payment terms for small studios?
1: I think they're definitely very important for small studios. Um, It's been a while since I've been in one, Um, but I think that business admin side for any size of business is very important and it's something that should be... um, taken very seriously, for sure.
0: Alrighty, uh, do you use any lawyers or anything like that? Yeah, we do from time to time, for sure. Dealing with contracts and law stuff, it's pretty stressful for most people, I think. You seem pretty relaxed about it all. I'm a pretty relaxed sort of guy. (laughs) Maybe too relaxed, but anyway, (laughs) I'm not... (laughs) You're right. It's the coffee, right? Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. It's what the it coffee, is. man. It's, it's the coffee. I'm enjoying the coffee.
1: Mm. We got great coffee
0: here. Uh, yeah, well, I'm on to a new thing, which is um, I use like a strainer and I put the coffee into the strainer, yeah. uh, and then it slowly drips through. Uh, yeah, drip, drip. I love it. Yeah, it's it's. I have good. a drip.
1: I have drip in the morning, actually, and then when I get to work, I have like a traditional coffee machine vibe. But yeah, it's 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 cleaner.
0: It's it's also stronger, I think.
1: <laughs> yeah, when I say stronger, I was saying it's sort of a cleaner, a cleaner rush.
0: <laughs> all right, let's move on from the uh, pleasures of coffee. A, a lot of artists they take on projects with a handshake, or not even a handshake, an email. Right. Yeah. Would you recommend that they had their payment terms in their quotes and all organised, um, or do you think it's
1: Oh, definitely. Yeah, look, I think every quote that we do is there's, there's a there's a payment terms and just the terms of business at the last page. Um, I think it's very essential. And uh, sometimes I see people have a lot of emotion when it's tied up to money. Really, it's not an emotional thing at all. Yeah, it's very logical. They're asking you to do something for a certain price, and these are the terms of the business. And it's 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 pretty simple.
0: Yeah, well, I find that the problems come when the artists are so en- engrossed in the work that the emotion is in the work. You yeah. see a fantastic project, they want it bad. You know, yeah, and, of and course. Look, it happens. their negotiation.
1: Yeah, it happens here too. It
0: happens here too. Yeah.
1: But, you know, there's certain business things that you need to assess and take into consideration.
0: And have you ever seen any bad business practices? I've,
1: I've seen plenty, I guess. I've seen dubious decisions
0: let's say yeah and what about people not getting paid either by clients or
1: yeah i've witnessed that too i've witnessed that too like i've been in businesses where we're trying to get companies to pay us and um um yeah and you and and, and you sort of employ a, a array of ideas and sort of things to try and get the payment in the door
0: and as a, like a, a worker, have you ever not been paid? Uh, never. I've always been paid. And the businesses you've worked for, have they ever not got their payments?
1: There's been some where businesses have gone broke and things like that, but um, I haven't seen a lot of it in my career.
0: Well, I would say that uh, it's out there, but most of the people I've worked with are working in the professional industries. Uh, get paid eventually
1: yeah i think so
0: yeah i hope so too i suppose you've got to have the contracts for uh, for if a case it does happen it's a backup
1: i think email is a very good paper trial most definitely it's great and i think if you keep a good paper trial and keep that side of that biz admin sorted you've got a good leg to stand on
0: so basically, how do you do effective budgets that are re- that are realistic and achievable, and you know you make profit? Well,
1: we've got a we've got a budgeting system in place that we do all our budgets and estimates in. Um, so I think having a good system on budgeting is key, um, and you consistently use that um, system um i guess having a good framework about what your rates are that you dial into that budget so you have got a good understanding of what your costs of business are i think that's really really important yeah um from the space that you're in your, your infrastructure obviously your hardware everything like i'm speaking to the smallest studios now but um you know you need to have all that data in place so you can really make a good um, have a good understanding of what it costs to do what you do Uh, and then obviously getting into the budgeting process you've got to have a a framework that allows you to break down all the elements that you need to make and how long it's going to take to make them
0: okay that's pretty interesting I actually think that too like I had a very structured to the way that I did quotes timelines and um, delivery schedules and I tried to not bend that much
1: we have a, a way of structuring our bids that really is, gives a lot of visibility onto everything that they're requesting and what everything costs yep. and why. And that allows you to have conversations about certain aspects of any different project that you're being asked to do yep. and identifying what everything costs. So if you break things down, give understanding to why things cost a certain way, I think it'll make – well, it does. It makes the budgeting and the negotiation process uh, a lot easier.
0: Okay, cool. All right, that's a good answer.
1: And you often get what you want. (laughs) 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 It's the aim of the game. It's the aim of the game.
0: (laughs) You say that. Uh, I I think I always wanted more than what they have to give. It was really –
1: Well, yeah. I've got sometimes a question where – They'll come to me with a, a client. I've got a question sometimes like or a statement where I'll say, look, I can go away and quote this job. However, I've got a feeling I'm going to be coming over what you have. So why don't you tell me what you have and I can help get you as close to what you want with that money. Yeah. Like I think it cuts out a whole layer of conversation of days or two where sometimes you're bidding something. Um, I just think saying that sometimes up front <laughs>
0: can also help. <laughs> okay. You give all that stuff to the client? You give them a timeline of all the different meetings you're going to have and all the review processes, how many reviews?
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, we definitely give schedules that have all sorts of particular times set in place, which all change. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, definitely we put together the schedule for them,
0: yep. And what happens when they start changing the schedule by not delivering what they're supposed to and things like that? How do you negotiate that sort of thing Do you?
1: Well, you've got to first identify it. That's the first thing. You need to identify that with your client, go, hey, well, we haven't had this by this time. This may affect the delivery of the particular project. So I think that's always key. I just, I know I keep harping on about it, but it's just communication. It's pure and simple. And um, making them aware of some of the decisions they're making and how it's going to impact what they're wanting you to make. And um, more often than not, you get to the right place.
0: Cool. Well, you do if you're a successful business. (laughs) This is true. Uh, Do you mind if I take a quick break so we can thank our sponsors? No problem. If you're looking for a fantastic mobile workstation, that is designed for the entertainment and creative industries, whether it's for processing complex 3D or 2D workflows in design, multimedia, illustration, animation, CG or visual effects, MSI's high-end mobile laptops provide one of the best solutions available for creative professionals. You can find out more at msi.com. Have we brewed the perfect coffee? You comfy? You ready to go? Ready to go. You know what I love about doing the podcast? It puts you in the moment.
1: That's another big thing about me. It's all about being present, man. Yeah.
0: You live in the present. So where I used to work, I was really like, they used to call me two things. They used to call me Passion Packwood. And then when things were going wrong, they used to call me Panic Packwood.
1: It's key not to panic. That's the key. Don't panic. Well, you can be panicking on the inside, but you can't appear to be panicking on the outside.
0: Yeah, well, I was panicking on the inside, uh, but it's funny. Everyone could see. Even though I didn't say anything, they could see it written on my face. Yeah.
1: I try to keep a very calming influence around everybody. And um, all I do, actually, it's not I try, I do. And um, I think that's really important to production management, producing keeping the studio humming at the right the right level
0: yeah well I, I think I was good at getting things done uh, but I also think I did it I made it an intense ride for everyone uh, yeah and yeah no one's patting me on the back for that but they were often happy with the work but yeah okay <laughs> I realized I wasn't that great at it
1: well yeah at least you realized right like it's good to realize what you can and can't do and yeah. I think that's that's really important
0: (laughs) okay so now we're going to move on to finn yeah the best place i've ever worked where's that finn yeah all right cool hundred percent tell us about finn's story there must be a story behind finn let's let's hear it
1: okay well finn this year is 20 years old wow founded obviously a fair time ago and this was in an era when all the visual effects companies and post-production companies in Sydney were all on the northern side of the Harbour Bridge. Yeah. They were all centralised around Crow's Nest, Tarman, etc. Yeah. And Finn was the first company to set itself up in Darlinghurst or on the other side of the bridge. Okay. And that was the most innovative thing for the industry. Like it was a real... We're moving across the other side of the bridge. It was a real statement. Yep. And I guess for me, when I saw Finn, because I, I used to watch Finn and see all the work that Finn did, did back in those days. And you know, I was you know, like, it was an amazing company and it still is. But, um, and I used to look at Finn as an innovative company, constantly innovating. And I guess that's something about Finn and the Finn story is that we constantly are looking to keep
0: innovating. So the company was started uh, it was a female who started the company is that correct
1: yeah Emma Danes she is still the CEO of the business to this day and somebody I engage with every single day
0: is it a partnership or is is she the owner
1: she is the owner of Finn she is Finn's owner yes
0: cool and I think that's pretty rare to have a female owner I haven't heard of that
1: yeah it's 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 very rare and it's and, and, and um. I guess there, there were there are two other founders back in the day with emma but she's now the 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 owner um i guess yeah it's to testament to emma and and to what she's been able to build here
0: was she an artist or a producer
1: she was a producer
0: okay how does your offering different to other vfx studios in sydney
1: the difference with Finn is that we are pretty much we're working both across commercials or tvc and long form whereas In this day and age, some of the the businesses that we're competing with are either one or the other.
0: Cool. Uh, And what's your personal uh, day-to-day like?
1: Uh, It's pretty busy, obviously. Very rewarding, I'll say that. Tough, challenging.
0: (laughs) Uh, Like, what do you actually do? Like, do you do a lot of meetings? Do you you spreadsheets?
1: Oh, look, I do a lot of budgeting. I do a lot of spreadsheets. I don't do a lot of spreadsheets. I do a lot of budgeting. Um, I do a lot of reviewing of work, dealing with artists, managing production, managing new business, chasing down jobs, getting things awarded.
0: How much of your job's new business?
1: I'm constantly chasing something down. So whether it's a percentage, but it's just, It's just part of who I am and the way I work.
0: And do you think that producers make good salespeople, new business people? Yeah, look, I don't like the word sales.
1: Yeah, look, there are some producers that are a little bit more entrepreneurial um, and there are some other producers that are way more just wanted to run the job. Yeah. And, um, you know, they usually identify if they are one or the other. Um, So, yeah, there are different skill sets for either.
0: And what's your pipeline like? What software and hardware do you have? Got Nuke, Maya, Houdini. Uh, We've got a couple of Flames. We've got Grade Suites. And you have other studios, it appears, in different parts of Melbourne and that. How does that all work?
1: Yeah, we've got an office or we've got a studio in Shanghai, which is around 25 staff, 30 staff, fully self-sufficient. When it first started, Sydney used to assist quite a bit with some of the more complex CG tasks that were were coming out of the Shanghai office. However, now, you know, they're really, they're holding their own on multiple projects. It's It's a really, it's a fantastic studio we've got going up there. We've also got an office in Melbourne. However, that's just a smaller scale type operation. And it's really purely set up to allow us to do some edit and some grade and some online there, as well as just facilitate have a space that facilitates creative conversations with clients the jobs might start in sydney and then we'll bring them down to melbourne we'll finish them off purely and simply to to be able to engage with all our clients down in melbourne
0: could you briefly just run through the different shows and movies that you've worked on just very briefly we've worked across
1: marvel studio shows thor ragnarok shang chi and the ten rings we've worked across multiple episodic Productions for Netflix.
0: Cool. I'm now going to talk about long form. How do you go about winning work from international studios and what are the important methods you sort of implement to make this happen?
1: When we first started wanting to get into to, to long form and film, we took all the work from our commercials and edited it in a way that was very film-centric so we broke a lot of the work into different specialties yep we we put all that together and then we went about visiting the us three to four times a year and taking meetings
0: and how do you get those meetings like very early on we
1: joined OzFilm, yep which is a australian government body uh, and there they assisted us with getting some initial meetings going on the ground in los angeles very much part of the process of us getting known in Los Angeles and in the long-form arena.
0: And does the Oz for Oz film cost money to be part of?
1: Yes, it does. Yes, it does.
0: Yeah, is it a, a good investment, do you think?
1: Yeah, it's very much a very good investment. Um, well, it's been great for us. It's been core, I should say. It's been one of the core things in our success.
0: It seems to be that only the bigger companies or the biggest are, are part of Ausfilm. Is that because it's just price
1: yeah i think it's price but i think it's also like we had to we were when we joined us we needed to be vetted by some of the other companies because you can't just have anybody join because awesome is all about selling australia and i guess you need to be able to produce the goods
0: and what size is your vex team
1: oh the team here at finnan in sydney is currently around about 110 120 wow that that's including all support staff yeah as well
0: okay and uh, that's not including the team that are overseas
1: no that's not including the team overseas
0: yeah so shanghai's around about 25 30 and do you think you'll be all back in the studio anytime soon
1: i hope so i hope so
0: um you prefer that
1: yeah definitely I think from a broader perspective, the creative process is uh, way more efficient when you have the majority of people working together in the same room.
0: Keeping a long form project on budget. Yeah. What are the things that like, it's such a massive thing. What, how do you, what are the milestones? What are the things you put in place uh, to manage the risk of budget overruns?
1: You've got a pretty robust bid first and foremost, so you've got a pretty good understanding of how many days that you've allowed. We've got a very good system that allows us to get an understanding of where, how many days have been spent on a particular job for a certain department, and obviously tracking that and keeping on top of that is very much a good, to get a feel or get a a solid understanding if you're going over in any department and things are taking longer than you expected.
0: And what's your tracking software?
1: Oh, we've got a proprietary system in here called Emma. Uh,
0: are you thinking about selling that at any stage, or it's just
1: no? We're not thinking about selling
0: it at the moment. No. Ah, and uh, <laughs> so, yeah, back to the trying to keep it on schedule.
1: Well, trying to keep it on schedule is uh, having good producers, yeah, but also good supervisors. And it's—I don't really think it's that difficult to keep a job in control. Yeah, you've got to have the right systems in place to allow good visibility on what you're doing and where the job is. And once you have that visibility, you can quickly identify if something's going off track.
0: And what do you do when it's going off track? You get some understanding of why, first and foremost. You You gotta know
1: why. And if it's through certain factors that need to be communicated with the client, you communicate those. If not, you gotta drill into why and there's usually a very logical explanation for why you adjust the project because you might be winning somewhere else on the project right not all things that you quite take the exact amount of time that you think yeah and some things you might be under and then you can obviously you know assess that against the other area that might be going over and you might be might be line ball at the end of the day and you might be you might be okay
0: What's your approach when it comes to directors in regards to negotiating changes and additional things that are not in the script or budget?
1: Uh, the approach is when they make the request, we ask if they've got more budget for this, um, particularly if it's extra shots. Yep. And more often than not, there is, and they understand that they're asking for more, particularly with the, the big long-form projects. Yeah, Definitely. If they're asking for more, they usually just say, "Hey, this is an additional request. Please quote it," and you do.
0: Do you ever get hardballed?
1: Negotiation. You're only as good as what you can negotiate, and yeah. But I'm finding in the current climate, everyone's so busy. Clients are really just being able, are really keen to be able to just to lock you in and make sure that they've got you on the job. Um, so I think it's a really good time for visual effects companies.
0: And do you think that that will allow you to charge more?
1: Competition will always be there, 100%. And whether it's allowing you to charge more, it's whether it's allowing, it's more just you're charging what it, what's required.
0: And, and do you think that like uh, staff, staffing shortages may happen? And do you think that will have an effect, a positive effect on wages?
1: There's such a demand for staff that wages are getting inflated for talent that may not really be worth that. Yeah. The wages that are for talent at the moment are very, very good, but they've got to be able to produce the goods.
0: What about training young people? Like, it seems like there's a ton of young people who just want to do VFX but don't have the skills and they've come out of uni Correct. without the skills. Correct. What about industry training? Like, you know, the builders train their own people and the doctors train their own people.
1: Yeah, yeah, we 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 have got quite a number of junior staff that we've hired into the business and identified that are potential, you know, future talented artists. We've got I think four or five in the CG department all positioned in the various different specialties. Yeah. And yeah, they're all under a supervisor and learning as they go. So yeah, it's something that's essential.
0: First of all, I want to ask you a question about working on Australian productions. What was it like doing I Am Mother? And What's the difference between working on an Australian production and, say, an international one?
1: Um, well, firstly, working on Iron Mother was intensely rewarding for everybody that in the business. Yep. We were the primary vendor on that show, so we had a considerable amount of shots. Yep. Um, so that was a big responsibility. Um, yeah, it was fantastic to work on. Was shot and shot down in Adelaide. We sent a supervisor down there, um, and yes, yeah, so we we're involved from you know, the script all the way through to the final production, which is, you know, not always the case.
0: And it was a scientific, science fiction movie uh, where there was a robot looking after a young child. Yes. Did they ever consider uh, making the robot a CG character?
1: Um, Yeah, there was consideration to do it all in CG, but it was cost prohibitive. Okay. Pretty much from the get-go, it was always going to be a man in the suit. Okay. However, there are specific shots in the film where we built a full digital replica of Mother. Yep. So there is, you know, quite a lot of shots where she is actually digital, so CG. So, But the majority of the shots in the film, I'd say, I reckon about 60%, 60% to 70% is the man in the suit.
0: And I have to go hats off to the man in the suit because I actually thought it was CG it was interesting
1: uh, some of the work like was um where to workshop made the suit yep. and one of the guys from Weta workshop who made the suit ended up being the guy that drived the suit and acted in the suit
0: <laughs> i don't know what to say to that the guy who made the suit acted in the suit yeah it was
1: crazy they did all these they did like they got all these people into to to act in the suit yeah. and he ended up being the best so he auditioned for the, for the role. Yeah. And, yeah, look, there were certain aspects of things that we needed to replace because it wasn't as robotic as it should be. So we did limb replacements. There's all sorts of other aspects of the work that we did on that show.
0: I saw that they had a suit that was all blue. It was like a blue suit. We, we, we shot
1: with the blue suit. It was all made out of foam. Yeah. Uh, and then we built over the top of that suit. There was a fight sequence with Hillary, um, Hillary Swank. So she had a fight sequence and so the suit couldn't do a fight sequence with her. So we had to do a full digital replacement of Mother for those particular sequences. And also Mother was running around corridors and you couldn't run in that suit. It was a bit, was a bit heavy.
0: Cool. All right, so we're going to move on to uh, Marvel's Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Yes, indeed. Okay, can you briefly just explain how many shots you delivered and what sort of shots they were and what sort of effects that you did in them?
1: We delivered 18 shots in the end. Yeah. Um, so it was quite, it's quite a small number of shots. However, I will say we were the vendor with the smallest amount of shots. Yep. However, we had the most shots in the trailer. <laughs> so it's quite a nice thing. <laughs> um, they really liked what we were making, that's for sure. It's all set in in, in, in this shrine room. Water starts seeping from the walls and then bursts into the room and freezes around all between the main characters and then falls to the floor and, and, and it turns into a water map revealing bioluminescent tail well, bioluminescent, I should say, trails that lead to the moon gate, and it's that's the location of the Ten Rings.
0: It was mainly fluids uh, interacting.
1: Yeah, it's fluid simulation. Yep,
0: yep. And you seem to do a lot of the water shots.
1: Yeah, we did all of them, yeah.
0: Can you explain how do you budget and like work out the timelines for water and fluid?
1: We go about, okay, what do we need to make? Yep. What do we need to develop? And I guess with simulation it's all about what system do we need to make and to build to be able to execute this many shots of water flying around the room okay it's like we treated it like let's just say if we're having to build a character in this instance we're having to simulate water and we identify how long we ne- need to make that system yeah how long it's going to take for us to execute what they're after in each separate shot
0: cool and did you bring in talent uh, who specialized or did you use uh, specialized in sims or did you just use the guys that you had on hand
1: yeah we've got a dedicated, very experienced effects team here at Finn. So it was all in house.
0: Okay. What software did you use to do the simulations?
1: All the simulation was conducted in Houdini. Yeah. uh, And then it was then run through a traditional Maya pipeline for all the lighting and uh, rendering, and then obviously all compositing and happened within the Nuke pipeline.
0: And what was the iteration process like with the water?
1: sometimes with particular clients you could present the simulation or the sims however with this particular project it became apparent that probably presenting the water rendered was a better way to go and a better process for us to get uh feedback as well as approval of the shots that we were working on and particularly the way that the sims were behaving um it was it was difficult a lot of rendering um however in the end i think it was a It was a better way to manage the client and their expectations and their understanding of what we were making.
0: The people from the studio, were they heavily directing the water simulation or did they give you a bit of freedom?
1: This sequence is a pivotal sequence because it has to tell a lot of story. So there was quite a lot of storytelling in what we were required to do as well as just making things look cool. Um, and Finn's renowned for that with Marvel, like they really have us, they call us usually when they've got some really pivotal story beats that they need to communicate whilst having great visual effects. Yeah. They came to us and said, hey, this is the idea, this is the room, this is what it needs to say, go away and have a think about it and come back to us with some ideas. We, we pretty much had creative freedom from the get-go and luckily enough, they didn't change anything, they just kept buying what we were making and they just let us run free and it, uh, it turned out really
0: well. Was there any challenges that you had to overcome? Were they the technical challenges or?
1: The biggest challenge was COVID. Okay. Our, our sequence was shot, was the last sequence shot before they shut down the first time. Yep. This is going back a year and a half.
0: How did you steer your way through the COVID?
1: But we were lucky that we were handed
0: over our shots
1: during the first lockdown. The crew had some stuff to focus on, which was really interesting. Yep. A work perspective, we we had a lot of stuff to do, which was great. Um, there were a lot of places that didn't, so we were very lucky in that regard.
0: What would you like to work on in the future?
1: I want to continue working on film and episodic television.
0: Yep. I want to
1: work on projects that are, are, are creatively satisfying for not only myself, but also the crew in the business. A lot of the satisfaction in my job, is seeing the crew work on projects that creatively challenge them and also creatively reward them. As a producer and a person that likes to chase down projects, you want to be chasing down projects that people within your your building want to to work on. The more of that that I can get happening at Finn, uh, the better.
0: Cool. All righty. That's it. That's it. Well done. That's an epic. Wow. All right. I think that's a great place to leave it. Thanks very much for taking the time and sharing your knowledge with us today.
1: Thanks so much, Matthew. I really appreciate it. Thank you.
0: Thanks very much for listening. If you like this podcast, it would be fantastic if you could go to iTunes and give us a positive review. It helps other people find us. You can check us out at mastersofmotion.com.au where you can see all the work that we talked about today and lots more outstanding motion design work. And don't forget to become part of our jobs network if you're looking for a better job in Australia or New Zealand. Thanks very much for listening. I hope you have a great week. This is a solution. Bye-bye. If you're still listening, you must have enjoyed it. Just a quick reminder, if you could write the review on your player... And then send it to me via email at matthew at mastersofmotion.com.au. That would be a fantastic help and support me for the next series. Thanks for your support.